everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Faust, and I'm a licensed clinician. Did I just say Faust? Anyways, uh, I'm a licensed clinician specializing in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders, and uh, uh, thank you all for joining me today. For those of you who are new to the to the show, um, this is a question and answer based show where if you have questions about uh, uh, OCD treatment or anxiety disorders and diagnoses and how to work with them and how to how to overcome them, if you have family members who are struggling with them and you, you want to try to figure out how you can best help them, um, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can submit a question to me. I will read it, consider it, and likely speaking, I'll put it up on a future episode just like this one. Now, as I've said before, uh, we are, uh, we, me, I, uh, I would love it if you have your, with your questions, if you can send it to me in an audio format, meaning record your voice, you can uh, record it into your phone, record it into the voice memo section of your phone. Uh, you can record it um, just however you can get your, your voice to record and then upload that audio to Google Drive or something like that and send me that, uh, send me a link to that shared drive and uh, I will upload that to the next uh, to the next podcast. And as I've said, I'm putting those at uh, tippity top priority, and uh, you can cut the line um, at, at this point. Uh, because uh, I just think it's so much more interesting to hear your voice, and it's so much more meaningful to hear uh, the the voice of somebody else who's struggling, and, uh, and and that's the whole point of this this show is that um, is for people who are struggling or have questions or worries or difficulties with all of this that they can know that they there is hope out there and that they have a place where they can talk about man the stuff in their life that is just terrifying and scary and uncomfortable and uh, taboo perhaps um, I. There, there's nothing that I haven't heard. Um, well, no, the last episode proved that there was something that I hadn't heard. Um, but um, th- there's nothing that's going to make me turn red or uncomfortable. And uh, if it, you think it's so bad and so awful, you know what I'll do? I'll still put it up on an episode. I'm just going to put a little, um, you know, explicit tag next to it. So uh, if you have a child or if you are a child and listening to this, uh, if there's a little tag by it that's red, it says explicit or something to that effect, don't listen to it. It ain't for you. And that's fine. It's for us adults or for those of us who um, are, are okay with the, the the wonky weird stuff so and i say wonky weird you know what i mean so stuff that is um not not what we're supposed to talk about in polite society right that stuff so um so before i get into this question today and it's i'll, I'll apologize in advance it's a long question uh the 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 writer i believe it's pronounced bork i'm gonna go with bork on this one uh, it's it's long. I've actually edited it down and compiled some things as best I can to summarize what they're getting at. Um, but it's long, so we're gonna just kind of work through it all together. We can do it. So um, so this is a. Uh, I have two two things to talk about just before we get into the question. So um, so so the first thing is um, is a bit of a. Um, I, I don't know, the, the very first uh, FearCast podcast classified section. Uh, and it's that um, my practice, my private practice, Cal OCD, or the California OCD and Anxiety Treatment Center, is hiring. If you are a uh, an MFT, MFT associate, perhaps even an LCSW associate, uh, if you are 
interested in specializing in working with OCD and anxiety um, uh, and would like to work uh, with me, would like to work with me at Cal OCD, send me an email. Send me an email at kevin at calocd.com. Uh, send me your resume, cover letter. I'd be delighted to hear from you. I'm very much interested in trying to fi- find someone, perhaps even two people, um, as soon as I can. So if you hear this and you just go, you know, I've wanted to do this or specialize in this and I have the qualifications, um, shoot me a message and uh, I definitely want to set up an interview just to see what we can um, what we can work out if, if possible. Uh, so that is the, the one point. Uh, the second point is, so I'm, I'm recording this on January 21st, so uh, Friday before the Monday that I typically release these. And um, so I, I, I woke up today, as I always do, I turn on the news and I heard some sad, sad news, which was Meatloaf has died. Now, if you don't know who Meatloaf is, it probably means that you're very young or that you do not listen to music. And that's also fine. Um, so Meatloaf was a singer, artist, uh, uh, actor, um, most people. I suppose if you don't know his music, you probably know him best in Fight Club. Uh, he showed up. He was he was um, opposite Edward Norton at, at some points. Uh, that not the Brad Pitt guy, the guy that looks probably the opposite to what Brad Pitt was uh, or is. I suppose he's still alive it's thus far on Friday the twenty first, but we'll see. Um, and uh, it's uh, it, it it is particularly sad to me because um, I went through a meatloaf phase in high school and just I, I had I, I think I had the Bad Out of Hell album or it might have been his best of I don't even know but I probably listened to the song Bad Out of Hell an uncomfortable and shameful amount of times so. Um, I, I'm just admitting that to you all. I feel like I can trust you. I mean, this is in this in this private setting, uh, and and thank you for your forgiveness in that. But um, if you have a moment today, uh, and by moment I mean like ten or fifteen minutes, because that song is so long, um, take a moment and listen to "Bad Out of Hell." Uh, I also want to highly recommend the song. You took the words right out of my mouth. Um, probably later on, he was more popular for the song "I'd Do Anything for Love," and then in parentheses, "But I won't do that." So uh, you can figure out the mystery of what it is that he's talking about that he won't do for love. Um, that's just a fun little game that you can play with yourself. And um, listen to the song then, the I, I'll do anything for love or I won't, I'd do anything for love. Anyways, listen to that and, and play Mad Libs with it. Think about various things that he might do and then he'll tell you the stuff that he's not going to do for love. But it's a, it, it changes the context uh, for you. It's a, it's a fun game. But anyways, listen to Bad Out of Hell. It is so weird and amazing that this song was super popular for a period of time because um, it sounds like it's something that should be in a, a musical or a theatrical setting. Anyways, I'm, I've probably spent way too much time talking about that, but I'm going to highly encourage everybody to just take a moment um, to hear this amazing song and revel in its glory because that's what it is. Anyways, moving on, everybody. Oh boy! Um, all right, so let's let's just get into this question from Bork. So Bork says, "Hello there." And, and again, some of this stuff is is uh, I'm going to compile it. So he says, "Hello, I'm a 35 year old former lawyer from Australia who is suffering from panic disorder with OCD features." Uh, so his background. So this is the summary. And again, I'm going to 
go jump back and forth between direct quotes and not. So his background, he says he's got you know a family history of domestic violence and kind of some contamination obsessions. He had a panic attack in 2018 that resulted in a lot of fear of more panic attacks, going crazy and feeling confined, which just led to kind of more panic. So additionally, he would suffer from kind of suicidal thoughts as a result of all of this. And we'll, we'll, he outlines this further. So he said that, that he went into treatment, started medication, for, and had some success, and then got off of medication after about a year and a half of use and, and stopped using it due to the side effects. Uh, and then once he was off, he started getting more panic attacks, anticipatory anxiety, which is kind of common. Um, but he'd often be triggered by thoughts of going crazy, insane, or kind of killing himself. So he, he specifically says, he says, um, um, I'm now thinking that my intrusive thought cycles are becoming uh, uh, obsessive in nature, and that it's really a type of sensory motor hyperawareness OCD. So he goes on to cite that uh, his obsessive thoughts about like seeing seeing his the tip of his nose in the field of his vision, uh, and that that awareness uh, would be permanent, and that he'd never be able to live with it. Um, and uh, he later developed an obsession about white noise, so kind of a similar thing, uh, and that uh, the awareness would never be able to go away. Common themes we're hearing, right? He then says, I subsequently used exposure therapy, meaning deliberately focusing my eyes on my nose to, and getting used to the feeling without panicking uh, to overcome it. I says, so I decoupled the fear of the anxiety, uh, uh, fear of the anxiety that had attached to it. He then says, I also got a very rare, once in a blue moon, sexual type of obsessive thought. He says, one day I was with, uh, with a, a female friend, uh, and, uh, and I had the thought that I was going to grab her breast, and I felt really disgusted over the thought, uh, but managed to, quote, kill it, so d destroy the thought, uh, before it caused me distress and, and, uh, and, and downplaying it as mere, merely an intrusive thought. This type of thought only occurred once or twice a year uh, and fizzled away pretty quick. The obsessive intrusive thoughts would occur during these periods uh, when my anxiety was more pronounced. Announced. Uh, then it says, now I feel as though I'm obsessing about panic attacks and the feelings um, that I experienced that led up to my panic attacks. He says, I constantly scan for signs or symptoms that I would get or uh, th that I would get in the lead up to panic attacks. And this has, uh, this has led to more anticipatory anxiety, which has led to more panic attacks. It's kind of this, this crazy cycle that happens. It gives this example. He says kind of internal bodily sensations such as brain fog, a headache, etc., uh, would result in a barrage of intrusive thoughts coming up, which uh, he says my brain uh, seeks the answer or seeks to answer and to answer uh, subconsciously. My brain would get overwhelmed with the intrusive thoughts and I think that I'm going insane. You hear the pattern, right? This ends up with a panic attack. Uh, the ultimate intrusive thought, um, or it says the ultimate intrusive thought common to all seems to boil down to two major fears. One, I will eventually uh, either go insane and, and end up in a mental facility, or two, I will uh, I will come to the point where I cannot cope with an end, or I cannot cope and end up being suicidal. He says, so basically, it, they're all catastrophic thoughts. I have trouble controlling the unconscious thoughts and applying my CBT te techniques because they all seem to occur so instantaneously fast and subconsciously now. They are triggered by my internal bodily sensations. So my question is, have I been misdiagnosed with panic disorder? Could, I, could what I really have had all along be sensory motor hyperawareness OCD? He then says, or... 
can you have obsessive thoughts and panic disorder as well? I'm thinking that because I had OCD symptoms when I was 13, uh, that this may be coming back in adulthood as sensory motor hyperawareness type of OCD. I've read some research paper that start that stated 1% of OCD patients end up committing suicide. Now, this has heightened my concerns and fears. Uh, is this condition treatable and can I have a normal life? Thank you. So, Bork, thank you for sending this in. There are a lot of folks who have these fears. And now I'm, I'm going to st state this from just from the outset. Is this condition treatable? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is very, very treatable. This is one of the best things about OCD and anxiety disorders is that these, this is a very treatable disorder. And it can, it can be treated with cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, and medication. The combination of all of those things produces very effective results. So, and then can you have a normal life? So, it, it, it to a certain degree depends on what you are going to call a normal life. So, are you going to have, it, it, some people will say, can I have a normal life? Meaning, can I have a life and not have intrusive thoughts? The answer is no, because someone who does not have, quote, OCD also has intrusive thoughts. They don't have a normal life without intrusive thoughts. So a, a something that's important to remember is that people who have recovery from OCD still have anxiety, still have intrusive thoughts, still have the urge to do compulsions, and very often, or very often, these folks will sometimes, this doesn't make any sense is what I'm trying to say, these people who are, quote, recovered will from time to time also give in to their old school compulsions or discover brand new compulsions. It's normal. Um, so the, so in terms of how, can you have a normal life? I also want you to know, and I also want all of you listeners to know out there, recovery from OCD does come with it some kind of this this balance between the the if you think about the meme of like expected versus reality you can look it up um, it's kind of the idea of like here's what I expected and it's something that's like a, a amazing and beautiful and then what you expected doesn't seem to be as amazing and special and it's because what has been sold I think the idea of recovery from OCD is that you're never going to have these thoughts again and that you'll only be happy and never be worried again. The reality is every single person on earth has anxiety, struggles, difficulties, depression. Uh, they, th this is common. So a normal life is going to be being able to manage your anxiety and, man and, and know what your obsessions are when they come up and being able to increasingly call yourself out for when you're having the intrusive thought and when you feel the urge to or have given into compulsive behaviors. There's a great article out there by jo uh, uh, Jonathan Hirschfield talks about the the what it, it's it's some of the effect of um, the the cure to OCD is that there is no cure or something like that. But he kind of, but he talks about and I've cited this before so I apologize. But he talks about how how recovery from OCD looks like still having the thought, being aware of the thought, and kind of expecting that it's going to be there, not being surprised that it's that it's there, and then or and having more effective, more reasonable responses to it. And that ultimately looks like no compulsions or minimizing compulsions. But we're looking for progress in this, not perfection. So if you're looking for a normal life as perfection, you're going to be sorely disappointed. So 
one of the things you said is, can I have panic attack or can I have panic disorder and sensory motor as, as if that they're mutually exclusive? So number one, Bork, yes, you can absolutely have both. Sweet, right? Gotta catch them all. Uh, these are the jokes. But you can totally have both. A lot of folks who experience and suffer from OCD and anxiety disorders experience symptoms of, of a lot of different disorders. And you think about anxiety then not just as these individual discrete issues, but as a spectrum of severity and a spectrum of kind of flavor and style to it. So uh, uh, OCD is, you know, it, it's sometimes considered or OCD is, is just an anxiety disorder. And it, uh, it, it's kind of on the more severe side or more intense side or more um, uh, bizarre side of generalized anxiety, which is a more low-level kind of anxiety that we all experience. Now, people can suffer from both and experience both. But we've we in the you know mental health world have needed to come up with these discrete definitions of them to help us to provide diagnoses and and, and subsequently uh, treatment protocols. So we we categorize some of these symptoms together and say, well these these symptoms kind of work together and often show up and they respond well to this treatment. But these they're similar, but they respond better to this this treatment over here. So. So it, it all it's all I've said it before it's all anxiety. So what you're experiencing Bork is anxiety. Now I think there are some similarities between these two that that are important to look at um and um and, and we'll talk about those as the core fear of it. Um but I was going to say initially is that I'm, I'm kind of not surprised that your anxiety returned after doing exposures, uh, doing exposures to the, that the ones you talked about of just exposing yourself to the the sensory motor stimuli, just the tip of your nose, because it didn't actually get to the the the, the fear underneath it. It just let you handle kind of the, the or let you observe and tolerate the fact that that like the tip of your nose is there. It, it is there. A, a lot of folks will be under the uh, misconception perhaps that for sensory motor OCD uh, is best treated by exposing you to the stimuli that you are obsessing on. So if you are obsessing about your breathing to say we're really going to focus on your breathing, if you're obsessed about um, like a ringing in your ears like tinnitus, right? That, that that the appropriate response is to start just focusing on that and focus on it so much that it goes away. I get the misconception because what do we do in, in exposure response uh, prevention is we identify the thing that you're afraid of and we face that thing. However, the the stimuli is 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 neutral in this sense. It's obnoxious, but it's it's just kind of a, a thing that is there and is annoying and frustrating. Um, but the exposure exposure to that stimuli. It doesn't really solve or, or, or address the main issue. The, the main issue that, that you're talking about here, I think, is the, the consistent worry about whether or not this is going to last forever and whether or not you can handle it. Um, now, but before I jump into that, um, you mentioned the, the fleeting sexual thought. I, I, I love that you pointed that out um, because, well, first off, yes, people are going to get those too. You have gotten those too. Um, but I, I anticipate it didn't really latch on or didn't really grab onto you because it doesn't really get at that core, that core fear of permanency in, in your life or like, um, or not being prepared or going crazy. And I, I think there's an element of, of lack of control in there or, um, something to that effect. Um, 
so therefore your brain didn't really latch onto it. And also you handled it pretty well. You just kind of backed off of it. And it sounds like you didn't really spend a whole lot of time with it, which is great. And it kind of fizzled away. But you said you also had that thought come up periodically. That's correct. We will periodically have these thoughts. Think about this. With your anxiety, and, and people will, my, my clients will note this. They, they kind of notice that, that, that their OCD is kind of always searching for something new, searching for something terrifying. And it, it, what that is, is just an overactive amygdala. It's an overactive um, fear response that is natural and normal. And we want that part of our brain because it keeps us safe. But it's just really overzealous and it really likes its job. And it sees, you know what? Saber-toothed tigers aren't trying to kill you. Um, elephants aren't trying to trample us and we've got plenty of food around us for the most part. Um, so we, there's not really a whole lot to be afraid of. But that fear part of our brain is still there. So it's just saying, all right, let's find all the things that are potentially maybe even sort of kind of dangerous. So that's what it's trying to do. So it saw this and spoke to your character and spoke to uh, uh, what you may do. And it went, wouldn't this be terrifying? And you went, yes, it would. I'm going to try to not do that. And it went, yeah, I guess you're right. And it got bored and moved back to the one thing that it knows it's going to get a big response out of you, which is this, the permanency of going crazy or the potential you might kill yourself. One of the most important things that someone can do in OCD treatment is to become aware of, catch yourself, and discontinue compulsive behavior as much as you possibly can. Compulsions are the thing, the behaviors, or the thoughts that are maintaining this fear, and it keeps it going because... You you are you, you have this fear or you have this thought that pops up in your head and it says, gosh, what if blank happened? And you go, oh, I don't want blank to happen. So you do some sort of behavior, have some sort of thought, do a ritual, do a routine or an avoidance, and your brain sees you at, or brain sees it and, and says, oh, good. That thing is no longer going to happen because we eliminated the fear, we eliminated the threat, we avoided the threat, whatever it is. And it says, oh, good, I feel like such a relief and I feel so confident and I feel so safe. Now, whenever we have this thought again, if we ever encounter that thing again, we know what to do. We know what to do that will keep us safe. And it's all those compulsive behaviors. You, your part of your brain believes that you are keeping yourself safe. And I think for you, keeping you prepared for what may come. And so by doing that thing again and again and again, you are feeling confident and safe. But as you see, it's not really getting you anywhere. It's only wrapping you up more in knots. So you can think about this is that when, when you talked about the scanning element, and, and that's one, one of the main problems, or a big compulsion that you cited, is that you're constantly internally scanning for physical sensations, and then wondering why you keep thinking about your physical sensations, and then noticing things that are off, and, what, and, and kind of there's, I, I'm hearing this expectation, which is a cognitive distortion of shoulds and musts, that you shouldn't have these feelings, you shouldn't have these sensations, or you shouldn't have these thoughts, right? First off, and we'll get into cognitive restructuring here in a second and identifying some cognitive distortions, is that um, whoever said that you weren't going to have those thoughts and feelings, we have thoughts and feelings all the time. It's surprising how many thoughts and feelings we have. It, we, we have them all over, but our brain 
it doesn't really focus on all of them all the time, it just focuses on some and kind of scans through our body and kind of says, oh, there's a feeling in my knee or in my neck or in my ankle and, and oh, I've got this thought over here and oh, that's, that's my heart, it's pumping and then um, I've got a little crackle in my lungs and you know, it's all sorts of stuff, right? But it bounces all over the place. But you are internally saying, all right, I've got to scan just to make sure that I'm not going to identify something or hopefully I can identify something and that I can squash it and keep myself safe. You've reinforced the safety idea, but it's only wrapping you up more in knots. So <clears throat> again, it's like, don't think about the white elephant and then you're wondering why you're thinking about the white elephant. One of the things you'll have to do is to take that risk to not be prepared, to maybe be caught off guard, and to maybe be overcome and overwhelmed by panic related symptoms or the other sensations that you're talking about or the other sensations that you're talking about that are indicative or or you believe are a symptom of or things that are precursors to going crazy <clears throat> you might have to take the risk you will have to take the risk rather to potentially be gaslit and blindsided by your fear but through exposure and response prevention and progressive disconnection from those compulsions, you can learn that the compulsions aren't, in fact, keeping you from going crazy. The compulsive behavior of scanning is not, in fact, keeping you safe. So this speaks to something called the inhibitory learning model. Uh, a lot of therapists are kind of moving in this direction. And if you go to the International OCD Foundation conference this year, or hopefully we're going to do it in, in real life. In, um, uh, in It's going to be in Denver this year. But if not, they're most certainly going to do the online one. And there's going to be a bunch of other local ones. Um, and by the way, if some of the talks that I'm um, submitting uh, get accepted in Denver, I'm going to go to Denver. If you go to Denver, find me. We'll high-five each other. So we'll see how it goes. Um, you know, unless this, something crazy happens, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Anyways, um, so the inhibitory learning model, it's this idea that, you know, what we, we don't fully, as ERP was traditionally sold as, we don't fully habituate to our anxiety. It's that we, we learn better strategies. We learn a new way to interact with our thoughts and that we, we learn that the compulsive behavior is not a necessary and requisite response to the thought that we have. And in fact, that in this, in, in response to that thought, we don't have to do anything, particularly the compulsion, but we don't have to do anything. And we find that we are okay. So there's a part of you that has reinforced the idea that, again, doing these compulsions keeps you safe from going crazy or killing yourself. It's scary to, to think about the idea of not doing those things because if those are the if those are genuinely the things that keep you safe, then the, then theoretically you would have those sensations and they would lead to psychotic break, hospitalization, uh, panic attack, and or suicide, right? Because you can't quote can't handle it, right? Instead, <clears throat> we put ourselves in these experiments and we show ourselves how long we can handle that thought. How long we can handle that uncertainty? How long we can handle, gosh, those uncomfortable physical sensations? And we continually and progressively start challenging ourselves and we expand on what we think that we can do. And we've, if we say like, gosh, man, I can, I can only handle hearing my, my tinnitus for like 20 minutes, then we go, great, we're going to handle it for 25 minutes without shutting it down or without telling ourselves it, that we're going to be okay or without trying to like shake our head and stop thinking about it. We're going to go like, yeah, man, it's going to be there. And I'm going to suck it up and deal with it and face it for 25 minutes. And you know what? We're going to see if I go nuts. 
I'm willing to bet you won't go nuts. I'm willing to bet you're not going to have a psychotic break and go into a hospital and wear a straight jacket and padded room or whatever else it is that you're envisioning. But we have to take that risk. Now, we're going to talk about exposures here in a little bit because there are a lot of exposures I wrote down for this that uh, I think you might be able to practice. Now, I'll also say this. For this practice, if you... Uh, you can. I would encourage you to do them under the supervision and guidance of a therapist, um, and that is yes, it is CYA um, because some of them are kind of scary. Some of them are going to make you feel uncomfortable. But let's be honest, these things are really uncomfortable, and um, that's the whole point, right? But anyways, um, if you are feeling overwhelmed and feel like you you can't do it on your own, that's okay. Then do it under the supervision of a therapist. All right. So the first thing I want to encourage you to do is, well, in, within cognitive behavioral therapy, we're going to do something called cognitive restructuring, which is rethinking our thoughts, thinking about our thoughts in a slightly different way. So you mentioned catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is that cognitive distortion that 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 points out the worst case scenario. In the absence of having evidence of something, our brain gives us the worst. It doesn't go like, oh, I'm going to have this thought, but you know, it'll go away. It doesn't say that. It's, oh my gosh, I'm going to have this thought. And wouldn't it be terrible if this happened? And then you run with it. So what I want to point out is with catastrophizing, this is your brain naturally and normally identifying the worst thing for you or a worst thing for you in a situation um, that you would not want to encounter. But having that thought is not the same as it happening, nor is having that thought increasing the chances of that thing happening. Instead, it is your brain giving you a little story and says, hey, Bork, wouldn't it suck if this happened? And rather than trying to take rather than trying to control it and trying to avoid it or trying to convince yourself it's never ever ever going to happen and that you're safe and happy and, and fine instead we can we can do a couple of things we can challenge that thought by reminding ourselves you know what it, it, it may happen but it's probably not or you can say catastrophizing or that, that catastrophic story is not is is not the same as or that that catastrophic option is one of a bajillion options meaning that there's no guarantee that this one thing because it's the worst for me is likely to happen or is going to happen but it's one of the many things that could now that's not very reassuring is it it's not but it's sitting within the gray area between this all or nothing between the black and white between the catastrophic and the, the happy outcome it's the reasonable one, right? You've heard me use the example of car accidents, and here I go again doing it, right? I'm probably not going to get into a car accident today, but you know what? I might. So I'm going to get in my car anyways, though, right? The catastrophic thing. Now, even if I were to get into a car accident today, it's unlikely that the catastrophic outcome will happen, which is for me, it is being a paraplegic or brain dead or, or something like that, right? Not, not death. I'm not as worried about death. It would suck, but not as worried. It's this. It's the the paraplegic that stuff. Ugh, pass right. But it's unlikely that that's going to happen because it hasn't happened to me since, or hasn't happened to me yet. And I have gotten a car accidents, and they suck. But the worst case scenario doesn't really happen. So it's helpful to remind ourselves. One, you can point out, man, that's catastrophic thinking, and then give yourself a little challenge to that, or remind yourself it's maybe it may be unlikely. Unlikely, but not not going to happen. 
Anyhow, another thing you can do with, with some of these thoughts, like uh, cat, uh, catastrophizing, is to have something called non-engagement responses. So, yes, this does give your thoughts some attention, but you know what? I think it's unreasonable to say or to expect someone to not have a response to a terrifying thought that you've had for decades, right? So, a non-engagement response is to say something in response to it or is to, is to point out something that is true about it but then put a period at the end of it and then not go further into the justification, the scanning, the searching, or the reassuring. So we can acknowledge the, the physical sensations that we have and say, man, I've got a splitting headache right now. Now, the subsequent thought that you might have had before was, and this is what this means, or this is where this is going to go to. Oh, wouldn't that be terrifying? I better X, Y, and Z. So we're going to go, gosh, I have, a, I have a huge headache. We can acknowledge also the urge. I really want to get certainty that I'm okay. I really want to ask my friends if I'm going to be all right. I really want to destroy this. You do. And you can acknowledge that. That's all right. But we're also going to say, I really want to do this, but instead I'm going to go for a run. I have a headache. Oh my gosh, I really want to avoid continuing to talk to this person. And yet I'm going to, or I really want to avoid going to class because I have this feeling and gosh, what if I die or if I go crazy in the middle of that? Well, that would be terrible. And I'm going to go anyways. So the other part is to acknowledge that fear that the worst case scenario, you can say, yeah, that would be terrible self. Like if we had that thought, we can say, yes, it would be awful if I killed myself. Wouldn't that be terrible? Because it would. But there's nothing that we need to then do about it. Even though your anxiety says and you, your pattern has been to do something, acknowledge it and then we just gently keep moving forward. It takes the, it takes the wind right out of the sails just to acknowledge the thought and just keep on going. We're saying this thought is irrelevant to me. This thought is unimportant to what I'm trying to do in my life. We show ourselves that it's, it's unimportant. You've been showing yourself that those thoughts and those sensations are paramount, are the most important things to you, because you spend hours and hours scanning for it, right? Of course, you're going to think about it more. Your brain goes, gosh, Bork loves to think about sensations. Well, let's give him sensations to think about. So it reminds you of them or it senses them more. So the other thing to think about here, before I even get into the exposures, is this idea that you can't handle it. So we've talked about with the inhibitory learning models that we're learning to handle it. But it can also be helpful to, to put a plan in place as kind of a backup. Now, this is kind of a weird approach, and some people may disagree with me. I may disagree with me in, in, in coming weeks or months. But it's to say, you know, if my worst fear is that I actually go crazy, or if one of my worst fears is that I actually go crazy, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a strategy and a plan together for what, I, what I'll do if the S hits the fan. If the worst case scenario happens to me, what am I going to do? How will I be able to deal with it? You've said, I don't know what I'll be able to do. I can't handle this long term. Well, let's think about a plan and put that plan in place, or at least have it in our back pocket. And then we can remind ourselves that if the worst case scenario does in fact happen, 
here's what I'll do. And here's the plan. And it might be we talk to the parents or talk to your friends and family or your loved ones and say, hey, if I go crazy, here's what I want done. Hey, if I go crazy, you know, just put me in like a really nice hospital or I want you to treat me in this sort of way. Or, um, you know, if I do go crazy, um, hey, friends and family, uh, I, I want you to take me to this hospital and I want to, you know, a friend over here, can you take care of my cat? And whatever the steps are that you need to do, um, friend over here, hey, can you email my my um, my clients or my business partners or whatever it might be and say, you know, I'm going to have to go through this um, uh, this treatment, um, but I'm going to come back out and it's going to be great or whatever the case may be. But the idea is something that you can you can remind yourself. You know what? <clears throat> There's a plan in place. I'll get treatment. I'll go into the hospital. I'll take medication. I'll do therapy, and then I will follow uh, treatment orders. And I'll work through it. This idea that you can't handle it, well, we have no idea if you can't handle it. But if we keep telling ourselves, I can't handle it, and then we freak out because we can't handle it, well, we're also buying into a lie. We don't know if we can't handle it, but we can put this plan in place. The idea is also this put this plan in place, and then we remind ourselves, I got a plan. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm not going to fight this. Or run away from it, and I'm just going to sit with the knowledge that I have this, this kind of back, back pocket plan, and I'm going to get on to whatever the next thing is in my life. And that is one of the ways that we can, we can show ourselves that this thought does not need any further attention. It's just something that's in place, and now I keep moving forward. Now, again, um, you can talk about this with your therapist as, as a strategy. Of course, any one of these strategies can become compulsive and problematic in nature. And that's why it can be helpful to talk about these things with a therapist ongoing. So the, the other thing to do is exposure and response prevention. So this is going to be kind of a combination to some of these fears. So certainly of the fear of, uh, of the physical sensations leading to the sensory motor, and then the going crazy, and then a little bit about the suicidal fears. Now, with exposure and response prevention, what we're doing is we're progressively moving ourselves closer and closer to the thing that we are afraid of and learning that we can handle it, that we can deal with it, and we can deal with it without these unnecessary, ridiculous, overwhelming compulsive behaviors. So, one of the most important, th one of the, the, the easiest things that anybody could do, I'm putting easy in quotes, you can't see that. Um, and by the way, I should say, I realize I talk really fast. I just saw that um, how much time this podcast is taking and I thought, you know, I'm only answering one question these days So, uh, per podcast, so I should make them short. It turns out I cannot not talk a lot I'm sorry. So, that being said, I still have a lot to talk about in terms of, of ERP. So, buckle up, kids. Here we go. All right. So, scripts. So, script is going to be a story that you write out about the worst fear of for you happening. Now, what, for for you, for someone with sensory motor, the fear isn't that the the focus isn't about the sensation. The focus is about the permanency of it, and that it's never going to go away, and the impact it's going to have on your life. I want you to write out the story of you having that white noise, or tinnitus, or the tip of your nose, or the physical sensations, and that you just can't handle it. It breaks you. You crumble. Your business falls apart. Your relationships die. Um, nobody wants to talk to you anymore because you're constantly thinking about it. You get fired. You're, um, uh, they take away your house or your car or whatever else it is that you value. And that, and that you spend the rest of your life in a mental institution. And you, you, the last thing on your mind is, 
I hope I don't go crazy. Or the last thing in your mind is, I can't stop thinking about that white noise, the humming from the air conditioning, and then you die. That's the whole story. And the idea is that this should make you feel uncomfortable. We're facing this fear, but without then giving ourselves reassurance that it's never going to be there, for, or it's not going to be there forever. It might. It might be. It, I will say this. It probably, or it's not going to be there forever, but it will show up from time to time. Your fear, though, is that it's never, ever going to go away. We're going to learn that it can go away and then come back. Go away and come back and go away and come back. Like every other sensation that we have. Another thing that you can do is to listen to the, to uh, take that script and audio record it and then re-listen to it as you're just kind of living your day. That would be a really good thing to do. Now, another thing about the idea of then going crazy is I'm, there are YouTube videos where they have like, here's the experience of someone developing schizophrenia. Great. Listen to those or watch those. You can look at um, the art of schizophrenics and kind of through the development of their schizophrenia from the time that they either pre-break and then through their treatment and then kind of like well into it near the end of their life, right? And see how the art changes. And you can say, you know what? That might be me. And say, it might be, and I'm going to keep living my life. We'll see what happens. So, those would be some really cool exposures to do. So, also, there are great movies out there about going crazy. So, one good one, Awakenings, that might tap into that like physical sensation and kind of being in a hospital and kind of being claustrophobic and stuck within your own body. Um, it's Robert De Niro and uh, Robin Williams. You can't beat those two. Another one, One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest, movie about going crazy. Shutter Island, another movie about going crazy. Clockwork Orange, I'm, gonna, I'm hesitant on this one. It's a kind of about a dude who's going crazy. There's a whole rape scene in it, which is uh, not my favorite, but it's um, people love this movie for some reason. Anyways, Moon is a fun movie to watch. If you're concerned about going crazy, watch Moon. Uh, Fight Club, it's a movie about someone going crazy and also has the very special guest of Meatloaf. So, tie-ins, watch Fight Club. Um, the, the other one that may actually also be really good in terms of the permanency and also tap into that suicidal thought is the, is the movie What Dreams May Come, um, another Robin Williams tie-in. It's super good, and I haven't seen it so long. I think it's 27 hours long, if I'm remembering it. That's an exaggeration, probably, but it's long from what I remember. Um, but it's, it's about someone who dies and goes to the afterlife. So, watch it. What's more permanent than the afterlife? Probably very few things. But anyways, that would be, those would be some good movies to watch. And again, the idea is watching it, letting the anxiety be there, letting those intrusive thoughts be there, and then casually shifting back to the movie. And we just keep watching. We let the thoughts come and go over the course of that movie. Now, interoceptive exposures are, are going to be are exposing yourself to physical sensations, and this is really helpful for panic disorder. Interoceptive exposures, again, focusing on the feelings and learning that you can have those feelings and that those feelings will rise in intensity and then drop off in intensity. And most importantly is that you can learn that you can handle that rise and fall of that discomfort. So, some of the physical sensations that you can expose yourself to, like you said, kind of lightheadedness and brain fog, you can intentionally hyperventilate. You can shake your head back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you'll start to get really dizzy. You can stare at yourself in the mirror. That can create this sense of, of, of depersonalization uh, after a period of time of just continually staring at yourself. 
Um, also, uh, again, just getting yourself really dizzy can help. So just sitting in a chair or just standing and just spinning around, you can do that classic move of get a baseball bat and put your head on it and then just kind of run around it. Or you can do a cricket bat if you're no longer, in, if you're not in America. I will suppose if you're no longer in America too, but anyways, a stick, run around the stick, you get real dizzy and you get dizzy and it sucks and you feel uncomfortable and it creates that sensation and then you notice it goes away. And then you jump back in and you dizzy yourself up or you hyperventilate or you, you stare at yourself back in the mirror and you, that spike goes up and then it comes down. You see where I'm going with this. Now for the headache thing, you can also just wear like a really tight hat or a band or like a rope around, like around the crown of your head um, and wear it for an extended period of time. You may develop a headache in this time. And that's great because you're going to say, this feeling is here. It's uncomfortable, but it's manageable and tolerable. And then you can also experiment and then see, okay, with these sensations, did I go nuts? Did I have a panic attack? Now, by the way, with these interoceptive exposures in real life is you have the feeling it's there and then we move on with our day. When we experience sensations and then we fear it being there and we say, oh no, I cannot have a headache. Oh no, I cannot have brain fog because that's the worst. It, it will often lead to panic attack because we're having anxiety about something. And when we have the anxiety without the willingness to feel anxiety, we're going to have a panic attack. Instead, we need, to, we need to be welcoming of those feelings and knowing that they're going to come and go, but you have other important things to do and letting those feelings be de- decreasing the importance that you place on them. Um, now, another thing you can do about the idea of going crazy is you can write notes to yourself that you are, in fact, going crazy. Another, and you can just write post-its and say, like, you're going to be crazy, you're going to go nuts, you're going to go insane, you're going to have a break in, in reality, whatever it is. Uh, you can have loved ones write those notes for you and just, like, surreptitiously, like, hide them in your in, in your drawers, at work, uh, or your, your drawers, or, like, pockets of your pants, or even even better, you can have them on their own, <clears throat> on their own volition, on the time, just kind of come up and say, are you doing okay? You you seem a little um you know like off yeah like off today. Are you going crazy? Now that's going to be uncomfortable. And that's more of an Olympic level thing, um, and I would encourage you to do that maybe after uh, again under the the guidance of a of a of a therapist. Um, but those are ones where the more that you hear that and the and the the. It, when you minimize the compulsions that you do, you'll start to see those thoughts as kind of silly or ridiculous or just, you know, uh, superfluous in your life. So lastly, with the idea of, of suicidal fears, now again, you can script those things. You can script maybe the idea that you don't know if you're ever going to do it. Scripting that you actually commit suicide is is going to be unhelpful in this, but it's because we're not talking about the fear of suicide. We're talking about the fear of maybe you might commit suicide or the uncertainty about whether or not you're going to do it or whether the uncertainty about whether or not you want to do it. Now, again, if, if you are concerned about actually being suicidal, go chat with a, a therapist, psychologist, counselor, and have them do an assessment if you feel the, the need to do that um, before doing these exposures. And that's for anybody out there with those concerns. But you can you can write the script about never knowing whether or not you are because it's not about being certain that you're not or certain that you will it's about living in the uncertainty that we don't know what's going to happen i don't also, uh, so i'll give you the example i don't know if today later tonight i'm going to kill myself i have zero plans to do it but i don't know if i am because i also don't know what i'm going to have for dinner tonight i don't know if what i'm going to do this evening i mean 
suicide is one thing to do, I guess. I don't, but it's super low on the like totem pole of things that I want to do. So I'm, I'm probably not going to do it, but we have to sit with the unknown. Now, again, I also don't know if I'm going to eat ice cream tonight, right? I don't have any at the house, but I could get some. But we don't think about those. It's the worst case scenario, right? It's we need to acknowledge we don't know and we're living with the uncertainty in between knowing and not knowing. And that's scary because you, Bork, and you and everybody else out there want to feel certain. So you can write scripts about that. Another one that's really popular is to write your own eulogy. It's then thinking about your own death and that's uncomfortable. And then just like every other script, you write it and then you reread it and reread it and reread it until that story becomes boring. So, um, those are a bunch of ideas that I have for you, Bork. Um, I, I know I've talked your ear off, and everybody else out there, I've talked your ear off in what I thought was going to be a short episode. But alas, here we are. So, everybody... I'll probably have the end music here now. Thank you all for joining me for this. If you have a question that you would like to talk about or you'd like me to yammer on about on a future episode, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can go to the submit a question link there. And I'm more than happy to answer one of those questions um, in a future episode. Check me out over at um, Fearcast Podcast. I'm Fearcast Podcast at, um, uh, on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. I don't do much over there. Um, but uh, check me out over there. Uh, if you can, do me a favor. Uh, uh, if you like the show, like the show on, uh, on whatever platform that you have. Give it a star. Give it a review. And uh, uh, it only helps other people to find it. raises us in the ratings as much as possible. So thank you all for, all, for those of you who have continued to listen to the show. It, is, it means the world to me that people would uh, listen to the show and trust me with these sensitive questions in their life. And I hope I'm honoring of them and, care, and caring and careful with them as well. So um, everybody, um, uh, if you, also please remember that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you would like a little help in your recovery, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can go to the find help link and there's going to be a little bit of tips and ideas and stuff there and some links that may be helpful for you. All right, everybody, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.